everyone. Welcome, Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. I know my voice is still off. I apologize. I was on the air with you guys on Friday, and I had strep throat, and now it's turned into a lovely laryngitis. So I... I was saying I had the Marlo Thomas voice, but then someone today said, no, you sound more like Brenda Vaccaro. And I said, okay, I'll take that. So I know my audience out there will know who that is. Um, I want to welcome you tonight and please indulge my voice. I apologize. Um, As we've talked to you um, in the past about bringing physicians in that are part of our Trinity Health Um, of New England Network. We're trying to do that every month, bringing one physician on a month that's from the whole region, just to give another perspective to different things that are out there. Um, Tonight is that night, and we are welcoming with us tonight Dr. Jeff Brown. Hi, Doc. Hi, good to see you, Robin. Oh, yeah, you too. Good to hear you. (laughs) I apologize for this voice. So Dr. Brown is a primary care physician that focuses on sports medicine, and he is part of the Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, which is at St. Francis Hospital. And you have a couple of offices, right, Doc? One in Hartford and one in Bloomfield? Exactly, yeah. I spend a couple days at each office. The Hartford one's right next to St. Francis Hospital. And the Bloomfield one's the one I saw you at. It was a little off the beaten path, but I found you. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's right on Cottage Grove, which is a big avenue in Bloomfield, which has lots of medical offices. But I'm a little tucked away behind that Boston Market restaurant there. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) You're you're right behind. Good place to go for lunch, right? You have one right near you. You got it. So you completed your residency in family medicine at University of Rochester and Highland Hospital, right? Exactly, yes. And then you did a fellowship in sports medicine at UConn. Correct. So it was a, it was a pretty amazing year. It was the year both uh, women's and men's basketball won the NCAA championship. What an the awesome first time! time. They both won together. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. What an awesome time to be there, <laughs> especially doing sports medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There were some incredible athletes uh, at that time who were playing on UConn. That was the era of Diana Taurasi. And oh, a wow. Wonderful athletes. That's yeah. awesome. I, I loved Okafor. Loved Okafor. Yeah. Class act. And he was a Absolutely. scholar, too. Right. Absolutely. Very smart guy. So I want to talk to the audience a bit about what sports medicine is, because there's so many different levels to orthopedic medicine. And sports medicine is something I think that is a term that is thrown out there a bit, but not everybody has a full understanding. So maybe you can explain that to us first. Absolutely. Yeah, sports medicine is, is basically orthopedic care at one level, which is caring for muscles, bones, tendons, and joint injuries, but also all the conditions that can affect activity, such as sports-related concussion or exercise-induced mm-hmm. asthma, or illnesses such as mononucleosis or influenza that can affect someone's activity. The way I see sports medicine is treating any condition that affects one's ability to be active, whether it be in their own exercise program or on a team or just on their own, you know, walking each night in their neighborhood. That's interesting. So you really do have to have a background in family medicine or primary care medicine before you specialize in something like this. Exactly. So like our, our, kind of uh, branch of sports medicine is called primary care sports medicine and people like me definitely we treat everything and so we're we're often team physicians for college teams professional teams and high school teams and so we need to be ready you know to deal with any condition or injury that affects one of one of our athletes or again anyone in the community who wants to just stay active right so yeah the general medical training is just invaluable it's really 
So as you see one of your own patients for anything, they can come in with a common injury that may occur through, you know, weekend warrior kind of activity, and you can navigate that with them. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So what I do, and any sports medicine specialist like me does, is we we figure out out exactly what the injury is, which tendon, which ligament, which muscle got injured, and then we help create an individualized rehabilitation plan for that person to get back to what the, the activities that they like to participate in. You know, I watch, you have a little video on the St. Francis website, which is so great. And I love what you were talking about in regards to, you know, why did you choose this direction? For me, um, sports medicine was part of family medicine training, but I, mm. I chose it because it was fun. Yeah. It was really fun to be at a game, at an event, and to help people who are really motivated to get back in, into the game and get back into their life. So one was the sports aspect of being around sports. I've always been active in sports growing up. I played soccer, tennis, street hockey, pond hockey, wow. um, golf, and just lots of other things in the, in the neighborhood growing up. Um, and so within the medical training that I had, I just found it fun. It, it didn't feel like work, um, like other aspects. And so it was just I had a natural affinity for it, yeah. Um, and so I pursued it. So I pursued the fellowship training so that I'd have the specialized training to be able to, to get the um, board certification in sports medicine uh, and to be ready to treat anything that an athlete would have. And really the fellowship training, it has a lot of orthopedic training in it, right. muscles, bones, joints, and tendons, um, as well as um, the medical piece of it. But really it's a strong, very heavy in the orthopedic part for that year. But you would have to know that, too, because you would have to know when you have to refer it. Absolutely, absolutely. So when I work with someone who has a knee injury, and say it's a ligament injury, there are a lot of ligament injuries, um, which a ligament connects bone to bone, that are easily managed conservatively, um, but there are some that are more severe that I certainly would need to refer to an orthopedic surgeon. So during the fellowship training, uh, we spend a lot of time with orthopedic surgeons, I even um, spent time in the operating room fixing these sorts of injuries. Wow. So I'm definitely aware of like which of this, the injuries really need a surgeon to be part of the, the program and which do not. And the good news is for most musculoskeletal injuries that people get, probably, you know, 80% of them are non-operative. And then certainly there are some that are. And so being aware of the orthopedic surgeons in my community and, and know who does what best is crucial uh, for the referrals that I make. So I'm sure there's more common injuries to certain groups of people than others, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at, um, say, your more common injuries for a team, what are those? So the most common <clears throat> injuries for most teams are going to be ankle and knee mm. for, say, the soccers, footballs, the running teams, field hockey, lacrosse teams, um, mainly because if you're those sports that are using your legs, you know, right. if you're taking a soccer ball and twisting, turning, even basketball, it's easy to roll your ankle on, in all sorts of ways. It's also e- easy to twist your knee. Right. Um, so ankle sprains are common. Knee ligament sprains are common in those sports. And throwing sports like baseball and a little bit with basketball, and certainly volleyball, shoulder injuries are very common where you overuse your rotator cuff tendons. Right. Um, and then it can also damage some structures inside the shoulder, such as the cartilage. So, so let's, it, let's break them down. Makes, let's break them down a little bit. So sure. let's talk a little bit about ankle, right? Okay. So what, yeah. 
if you, you know, what happens when, you know, people commonly roll their ankles, right? Right. In those types right. of sports, but they want to get right back to play. So how do you work with them to get them the highest level of activity they can attain in a shortest amount of time? The first part is when someone has an ankle injury, whether they just trip over a curb or, or on the field in a divot, um, is decreasing the swelling. Mm. So immediately the ankle blows up almost like into a, a basketball almost. Maybe not that big, but close. Swells up like crazy. So managing the swelling is the first step. Mm. You can do that with icing it down 15 minutes, like every, you know, on, on 15 minutes off for about two or three hours right after injury. Then in the days after the injury, you want to do that three or four times per day. Mm. Elevating the leg is very important to decrease the swelling. Once you manage the swelling of the ankle, it's easier to start getting back the motion. Mm. One other thing that can help with the swell, uh, decreasing the swelling is using an ACE bandage or an ankle sleeve brace to compress it a little bit, along with ice and the elevation. And we're so bad about that ice because right. we're so busy, right? So we don't do the yep. pattern or the routine. So it, we don't give it a chance to really come down in swelling. Yeah, it, is, it does feel like it's um, hard to add into your schedule. But I, I try to encourage folks to use an ACE bandage to wrap it to yeah. yourself so you can continue doing computer work, activities at home or whatever, while not having to stop and sit, you know, while you're icing. Right. Obviously, it's better if you can sit and elevate it, but the reality of most busy lives, that's difficult. So if you can at least hold the ice on there with an ACE bandage, you can still do the, you know, the task that you want to do. After yeah. the icing, we really want to get the range of motion back. Right. And um, then what do you do to help them get that back? Absolutely. The first step is alphabet exercises. It's really simple. But you spell the alphabet with your foot, huh. first in small letters, A, B, C, D, and then in capital letters, all the way through Z. Wow. It, it I'm, doing it, I'm doing it as we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> but when you get down to X, Y, and Z, it actually gets a little bit tiresome. Um, so it's really helpful to maintain the, the motion in all the different planes by doing the small letters and capital letters. And I would say do that two or three times a day. Then, you know, there's, this, there's some home exercises that I give people on on these uh, sheets, and if you don't have those, you can just Google ankle home exercises, and there's a whole bunch that are out there on the Internet. And those involve just, you know, like putting the pedal to the metal with your foot, pushing it down, bring your toe all the way up towards <clears throat> towards your body, and then to one side, the other, and sort of holding it there for 10 or 15 seconds to get back those four pieces of motion. There's all things you can do. You can, you can put your foot on a towel and crank it up with your toes, <laughs> to get back the flexion power of it. And then you can do some calf raises on a stair up and then down the stair. Um, so There's kind of a whole range of things to get the motion back. The alphabet ones are the ones to start with. Do Is that ankle now forever weaker? No, not necessarily. It, it says uh, an ankle sprain is, is a ligament injury where you partially tear ligaments. That's what it is. Mm. So it takes about six to eight weeks for that ligament to scar down and heal. And so once it's healed, gone through that healing process, um, it, it is not weaker than it was before. But during those six to eight weeks it takes to get healed, certainly you could damage it and have a secondary injury. So it is really important after your range of motion to get your strength back. And the way you do that is you use resistance bands. Push the ankle in all the different directions holding a resistance band, like kind of make a loop in a stretchy resistance band, you put your foot in it, you push it, pedal to the metal, right. toes up in the four directions. I've seen that. It, yeah, it's really helpful uh, to do that. 
You know, it's funny because you these are common things that you're saying. And as you're saying them, I can see them in my head. I've seen people do these things on, you know, in different avenues. And it does work. You just have to be dedicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, I, I see that time and time again, people who are dedicated to their home exercise plan and their rehab plan do tremendously well and they get better quickly. Those who have really struggled trying to fit in, into their lives, it takes a long time for that person um, to get better quickly. So you're right. If you do it, you'll get results. And, you know, being a team physician, I'm sure you get pressure from the coaches. When can he play? When can he play? When can I get him back out there? Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, everyone is motivated to get back as quickly as possible. The key for me in that is setting expectations right away Mm. with with the athlete and the coach about how long it will take, but then also making sure the athlete um, commits to the rehab plan both at home and they often have an athletic trainer, whether it be at a high school or a college, who can help them and kind of guide their uh, exercise rehab, um, getting them on board to be committed to that is, is very important. Now, you talked about the knee also, because that's a pretty common area. And as we get older, we think of more um, osteoarthritis that right. affects our knees. But in the younger population, the younger athletes, it is more ligament, um, meniscus type of things. Sure. Um, the most common condition that I see in you know the, the younger athlete is going to be something called patellofemoral syndrome, big mm. long name, but it just means pain around the kneecap mm. because the kneecap has to glide in this groove, um, you know, above the leg bones. As you bend your knee and extend your knee, it glides up and down. As it glides up and down that groove, it can get irritated on either side, the outside, the inside, as the bone glides. So that causes pain and inflammation. Very common in runners cross country track runners, and, and then any running sport, whether it be soccer, uh, lacrosse, field hockey, uh, anything. That's a very common condition. Wow. So it's inflammation of the structures underneath the kneecap and onto the side of the kneecap. So first thing is to ice that down you know, with, after exercise 15 minutes, two or three times per day. And then really the, like the cure for that is strengthening the quadriceps muscle, which really stabilizes the kneecap from bouncing around too much. So there's a whole set of exercises for doing that um, that again you, you could google patellofemoral patellofemoral exercises if you were interested in that so in the in the activity of running and stopping quick a lot that that happens with like soccer happens with basketball that motion in and of itself the knees twist a lot too don't they because you're mm-hmm. the way you stop and turn yes absolutely Absolutely, yes. Yeah, changing directions quickly, yeah. um, such as say a basketball game where someone's you know you're you're defending someone coming down the court and they change directions and you change with them. That is an easy way to twist your knee and, and partially tear the ligament Oof. and the or the meniscus, which is the cartilage pad in the knee. And so, you know, with the ligament injuries, the key is trying to diagnose which ligament it is and, and if it's mild, moderate, severe. Stabilizing that with a brace, uh, you know, adapting the activity um, so the person doesn't doesn't injure it more, and then helping them regain their strength and function over four, you know, four to six weeks as well. But really figuring out what the injury is is a crucial part. Which ligament and how, how severe, mild, moderate, or severe. And when would surgery be indicated where you'd have to refer? Like, what, what, at what level? Right. So, a, so for a ligament, a complete tear of the ligament where both ends are completely torn, torn. from each other, it often is a surgical indication. 
Uh, depends on ligament. So a common one that people hear about is the ACL, the right. anterior cruciate ligament, that lots of um, younger athletes tear, and certainly weekend warriors do as well. Um, and so that that is a surgical repair situation if the person wants it, meaning if they're still involved in a sport that involves twisting and turning like soccer, like basketball, then it makes sense and they, if they want to do it to, to, to have that repaired. However, if they're just a, a runner, if they're a runner for fitness and they go straight ahead, they don't necessarily have to do a lot of twisting and turning. So in a, a weekend warrior or a, a, you know, a non-college athlete, you could um, manage that conservatively with physical therapy and home exercises to compensate for it in someone who doesn't do a lot of twisting and turning. Yeah, that's but a younger athlete who wants to do tons and tons of sports, yeah. um, it makes sense to certainly repair that. You know, that's interesting because you think about leaving something alone and not touching it, even though it's torn. You're like, really, we could do that? You know, and but right. would it heal and become pain-free or would it always bother you? Um, it certainly could get become pain-free um, over time, absolutely, because basically the swelling of the bones that occurred when the, when the, when the ligament breaks, the... the leg bones, the femur bone, the tibia hit each other, it's not mm. a big bone bruise. That bruise is the source of the pain when that happens. Right. So that, that does resolve really kind of around six weeks. Um, and so it can be pain-free. And the, the way I see the knee, the knee has four ligaments. It's like a chair with four legs. If you break off one leg or you tear one of the ligaments, you still have three left. And so what therapy does is makes those three legs stronger than they used to be to compensate for the one that doesn't work. So that's why it still can do all right in someone who doesn't have to do twisting and turning. Yeah, that's really... Um, but the pain does go away, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you would think that you always have to fix it. Right, right. Now, with the comment, with the with the constant pounding on the pavement for a basketball player or a mm-hmm. runner, what sure. does that do to the knee? Oh, that's a great question. It's just thinking about, as we we're talking about the ligaments, the meniscus, the cartilage pad inside the knee, which right. is between the upper leg bones and the lower leg bones, the femur and the tibia, that cartilage pad gets pounded on when you're running on concrete and pavement and a lot of impact activity. So that can become thinner. It can wear out with time. I think of the meniscus as like a brake pad for the knees. And so you can wear down your brake pads just like in the car. In a car, they can start squeaking and squealing. And so a meniscus in a body can start feeling irritable and causing pain. And so um, if it gets torn acutely and starts swelling the knee over and over or, or get it, it, it gets torn and then sort of flaps around and, and gets in the way of you bending the knee, mm. that's another surgical indication for basically cutting out that torn piece um, with yes. arthroscopic knee surgery. Is that what, when, when someone complains their knee locked, is that mm-hmm. what causes yes. that? Often, yes. Yes. Often that would be the case. It's called a bucket handle tear mm. where the meniscus flap bucket handles up and it gets in the way of the joint being able to move. Um, I think my husband's listening because we went through this when he was a kid. He played a oh, lot geez. of basketball. I remember at, I remember one point his knee locking up when we were we were just kids. And and sure. and he's got bone on bone now. It's not fun. Oh, it's, oh yeah, it's definitely definitely not fun. And, yeah, and osteoarthritis is obviously very common for um, lots of us out there, especially very active people over the years have worn down the cartilage just from using their knees right. and doing lots of activities on hard surfaces. And, you know, what I've learned in the last few days, because he had a follow-up with a physician recently, it's not an emergency to get your knee done. It's just based on the tolerance of pain that you have and the mobility that you need. 
absolutely correct. Right. So, so what we tell people is that they'll know when it's time to get the, mm-hmm. their knee replaced because the knee pain will get in the way of their daily activities so much so they're just tired of it and they want it replaced. And right. They'll know when, hey, I can no longer, you know, do our evening walk around the neighborhood. Right. Or, hey, when we go to the grocery store, it is really difficult to make it through the whole shopping trip. And, and um, the techniques are so different now. Right. Uh, for joint replacement? Yes. Um, they're so different. Absolutely. The implants they use for both knees and hips are better and better and better, and they're lasting often 20 years now, yeah. sometimes even longer. Which is much longer. We're exactly. still going to wait. We're going to wait till retirement. I want to yeah, get him to retire. <laughs> I told him, good. hang on for a while. Absolutely. Oh. It, and in the meantime, you can if he can keep his uh, he keeps his quad muscles strong and his yeah. hamstrings strong. That will help you know decrease the impact on the knee. Right. Um, and weight loss know. too. Certainly. I know. Uh, weight loss helps everything. Yes. Including <laughs> less force on our joints. Definitely. People don't take don't take that as seriously, but I know with him, he's lost 50 pounds and it's really reduced the pain. Excellent. That's great to hear. Absolutely. You know, you really have to be diligent about that. Just be, There's so much more that your weight impacts, but on our joints as we get older, it's huge. And I'm sure you see that with your patients. Oh, no no question. And, and, I, and I do see like even folks, if they're, they can lose 10 pounds, which right. can take, that can take three or four months, but that can have a significant um, beneficial impact on less, you know, causing less pain on their knees and or hips. So even like that smaller weight loss w- was beneficial. Certainly if you can get up to 30, 40, you have an incredible uh, improvement. Definite relief. Pain. Definite yeah. relief. Definitely. Now, one yeah. of the, we also talked, you were talking about baseball and you were talking about that motion of pitchers with the throwing. Right. You know, we see so many kids now that are playing baseball at such a young age. And I know these kids are on pitch counts, but... Good. These kids are starting to pitch at, you know, seven, eight years old, and they're pitching long games. Right. And I'm sure you're just seeing more and more of that. Yeah, overall, the, the sports medicine community has seen you know, up, a huge uptick in elbow injuries, specifically um, tearing of the ulnar collateral ligament, which is commonly called the Tommy John surgery. Injury, because mm. it's Tommy John surgery to fix right. that. Um, that's because he was a pitcher who had this injury years and years ago and it was, it was fixed by a surgeon out in california don't say too many years because i remember that surgery. <laughs> only a few years ago <laughs> but um but yes um the really the increased amount of of pitching big days per year has really mm. led to this um the pitch count has actually been very helpful in decreasing injury both shoulder and elbow for our younger kids playing baseball because it gives a very tangible count that any coach and any parent can look at and say, hey, this is it for today. Someone else has to have a try at the mound. So it's been very helpful. But what's been detrimental is the number of kids playing baseball like 355 out of 65 days per year mm. um, with multiple seasons, multiple teams. Just the wear and tear on both the elbow and the shoulder is just too much. So we certainly recommend people to do multi-sports, do alternate sports. Right. You, if you have one sport you love, you're really good at, maybe two seasons a year, not four. Right. You know, and taking a break, a week off between each season. Because our bodies need to recover, especially a growing body. And then by the time these kids get to the college level, they're almost burnt out. That's um, often sadly true. <clears throat> I agree with that. Our best athletes and the mo- our happiest athletes are those who played multiple sports growing up. And, of course, we all did, right? 
do fall oh. sports, winter sports, spring sports, and then summer you did swimming and right. hiking. Right, you rotated else. it absolutely. Exactly, and for so- somehow over the past fifteen, twenty years, there's this been development of sports specialization in our youth, which has um, been very detrimental with regards to injury. So yeah, the kids who don't have as much fun with the sports because they're doing one all the time often burn out either before college or if they go to college they drop out freshman year off not all not everyone but that's a common thing i see all the time um, which is sad so thankfully there's a big movement to stop sports specialization in our youth and encourage multi-sport because that's really better for the body better for our kids um and just the way it's it's good for everyone, really. Now, how do you help these kids that have the beginnings of this elbow injury? Mm-hmm. How do you help them? Yep. So that's a great question. Like, we see it early and it hasn't um, progressed to right. a bad injury. So um, basically, identify it first. You say we identify. You want to basically shut it down a bit. You want to get them off the pitching mound mm. uh, for, for amount of time. Then you want to build up the muscles above, uh, above the elbow, which would be the shoulder muscles and the biceps and triceps and the forearm muscles to support that joint. It's certainly the upper back as well. So you want to take them away from the mound, which is making it worse. You want to build up the muscles above and below, and then get them playing other positions so they're using their arms in a different way. And then when we get them back to pitching, we want to go very slow. So there's lots of throwing programs that can take um, four, six, or eight weeks that go a certain number of tosses per day to a certain distance that helps them get back to throwing but in a very safe, gradual way. So this injury is not uncommon in other sports, too, or is it similar? Is the injury similar, like with tennis and golf? The, the, um, this elbow ligament right, injury we're talking right. about? Right, Would it be a different elbow. type of an injury for that the, when we talk the, about tennis elbow? and? Right, it's different from tennis elbow and golfer's elbow. But just the other sport where this happens, this elbow injury, the ulnar collateral ligament uh-huh. is javelin throwing. Wow. <laughs> enough, but the way you throw a javelin um, puts a similar impact on that ligament, just like a pitcher. So that's the other population of athletes that gets that injury. Obviously, there are not that many javelin throwers out there. No. But, um, it, it does happen. It does at happen. At the college level, yeah. Maybe out in England, right? I'm thinking like Harvard or one of those schools, Cambridge, right? Um, sure. When we do continue on with the elbow and we talk about some of the more weekend warrior sports, right. those to me would be golf and tennis. Absolutely. So do you see those injuries in your in your practice? Yes, all the time, all the wow. time. And so, so most commonly in, in tennis, it's going to be shoulder rotator cuff issues and then the, that lateral epicondylosis or epicondylitis, which is the elbow tendon inflammation, are probably the two most common for tennis. And Just then, so you stay with the elbow that... Yeah. Um, that it's pain on the outside part of the yeah. elbow. It's the lateral side of the outside. Basically, those tendons get overused. And just u- basically using a forehand and a backhand motion, you often use that tendon. It, it contracts up when you're doing that motion. Mm. So if you're playing a lot of tennis, hitting a lot of balls, you can overuse it and it gets angry. So we ice it down. Um, often you, sometimes we use a tennis elbow brace, a little band brace, which you put um, at least two or three inches below the area of pain because it kind of removes the pain in a counterforce way from the elbow. Um, then we ice it down and we you know, uh, decrease their activity for a while before building them back up. And then what would you do to build it back up? Um, and so we work on strengthening the forearm muscles. By, one thing you can do is you can like hold a can, a vegetable can or even like a uh, bottle of water. And you hold it in your hand and you can extend your wrist up 10 or 15 times. And then you can go down 
10 or 15 times. And that works both the hmm. muscles that extend the wrist and flex the wrist. You can try to do three sets of those. That's one thing you do. Then you can hold the same bottle, and then you can kind of twist your hand to open it, palms up, yeah. and then bring palm down to close it. And that's working on the muscles that twist and turn the elbow and wrist. Wow. Um, I'm so sitting here doing it as we're talking because it, yeah. <laughs> I have to visualize. If you were sure. next to me, we would be doing that. Absolutely. I was doing it, too, <laughs> as I described it. Um, um, do you, now, in doing that, in strengthening that, most times you wouldn't need surgery for something like that. Correct. Yeah, for a, a tennis elbow situation, rarely does that need surgery. Surgery is only indicated in, like, the, the last, last resort in, some, in that situation. Um, one, because it, you often don't need it. And then two, it's not that effective either. Basically, surgery breathes the tendon and takes off the parts that aren't functioning well. Hmm. Um, so it's a last resort. But before that, you can certainly work with a physical therapist. Right. You, they often use an ultrasound um, technique over that. And they certainly guide you through a guided exercise program. The brace I mentioned, one brace, the tennis elbow brace. There's also a sleeve. You can get an elbow sleeve at any pharmacy over the counter and, and put that on your elbow. That helps. Um, Helps to stabilize the elbow and gives yeah. it support. Um, and then there's injections. You know, cortisone injection can just give some symptomatic relief by decreasing inflammation. Some other injections that sports medicine specialists use, something called PRP or platelet-rich plasma, which can help some tendon injuries. Um, and then something called dry, yeah, uh, dry needling, where someone uses a small needle like an acupuncture needle, but puts many little small punctures around the tendon as well. And that creates an an inflammatory response, which can also help healing in some people. It helps to speed up the healing. Right, by causing the body to send inflammatory cells there to help it. Wow. Um, so it's a way to kind of turn on the body's um, natural repair system. So Johnny's giving me the high sign we need to take our two-minute break. Okay. So I'm going to let you take two minutes, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is Robin Sills with the Brenda Vaccaro voice I'm from St. Mary's Hospital, medically speaking. And we're medically speaking tonight with Dr. Jeffrey Brown, who is the director of primary care and sports medicine. And we're going to talk about this too, Doc, at the Connecticut Sports Medicine Institute. And you're also the associate director of UConn Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship. That's right. You're exactly. a busy guy. Uh, yeah, it makes it fun, you know, makes the days and weeks uh, makes very them go and fun. Fa- yeah, makes them go fast. Well, exactly. I really enjoyed meeting with you a few weeks back, and then you joined us for our first inaugural Hartford Sparkle event. Yeah, it's a tremendous event. Did you have fun? Hartford. Absolutely. It was, it was a, a great turnout. It's really fun to talk with people about their situations and conditions, and, and then to talk to all the different community members and other providers there. It was a great event and a wonderful location at the G Fox building there. Just great architecture. That was definitely fun. That was definitely fun. And you know, for us in the greater Waterbury market, we this was our fourth year doing Sparkle and then the first one for us to help you guys get it off the ground. And it is a great way to highlight services at your hospitals and get women to just talk one on one to physicians in a really non threatening environment. Right, absolutely. And I found that people really opened up about their own situations. Um in the, you know, in the in the mezzanine level that that was set up, so it was really. Um, it was fun. Set up to have there, yeah. It was fun, it, and we'll definitely. I mean, we've learned from this year's event, and we'll, you know, we'll take suggestions from our docs and from participants, and you know, it's always a growing thing. But we're happy at the success, so um, thank you for participating. 
Hey, you're welcome. Hey, I also met some a bunch of um, members from the Waterbury market who came up as well to help support us. That was nice as well. We got a good team. Yeah, we absolutely. got a good team. We have a lot of good followers here in Greater Waterbury. And it's really neat for people in the community to see the relationship of Trinity Health of New England regionally to see what we can provide for each other and for our communities. And, you know, it's it's really supporting each other and providing the best care possible for our patients. Right. You know, Absolutely. one of the things, and I don't want to miss the time to do it, so I'd like to talk about it now, if you don't mind, is sure. in the video I learned more about it, but this Connecticut Sports Medicine Institute. So mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Absolutely. So, the, yeah, the Connecticut Sports Medicine Institute is located here at St. Francis Hospital here in Hartford, and it's, it's a, a group of all the physicians who, who treat uh, sports medicine conditions and such. All the orthopedic surgeons who do sports, Injury surgery, such as surgery for the hip, knee, ankle, shoulder, uh, as well as the anesthesiologist uh, who help with the care, physical therapists who you know help rehab folks, and we even have a nutrition consultant as well. And so the the goal of the issue is to bring all of us together who care for active people um, and help us improve our treatment pathways and our coordination for the care of each of those patients. So we meet monthly. We support local events and teams like the Hartford Marathon Foundation and all of us care for different high schools and colleges in the area. Um, and we also involves research regarding the outcomes for certain surgical procedures and such so that we can identify best practices for those um, surgeries and, and best practices for someone going through a surgical process as well. So it's just a way to bring physicians and caregivers together to create the best possible care um, and most coordinated care. So it's really fun to be a part of. Yeah, it's awesome. People working together in that capacity. You know, we have a similar structure for um, cancer here in the greater mm-hmm. Waterbury, and I know that St. Francis does too, and it's a true collabor- collaboration of looking at individual cases, deciding the best path to care, um, learning from those cases so that you can help further with other individuals moving forward and it's I think it's great with every type of disease process we have to have collaborations within the specialty to provide the best care and so you know listening to what you're doing I know that here in Greater Waterbury we're doing a lot with orthopedics I love the model so I'm going to definitely share it with our guys here because I just think it's a great process absolutely we all benefit from from working with each other and and hearing what works best so we all can implement it our own, you know, our own offices and together. I know that we're increasing collaboration with um, the St. You guys, St. Mary's, and also uh, up in our Mercy as well. With Mercy, yep. it's so great. It is so great. Yeah. I have learned so much over the past several months traveling both to St. Francis and Mercy and meeting with different physicians. You know, that's why we felt it was so important to share um, our network right here right. on the radio station with the different physicians that we that are within Trinity Health of New England because we just think it's such a great opportunity to see what's happening in other communities. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree, I agree. It's so fun. And I find, that pe- and I find also that people, you, know, you may live in a certain town, but you may work all throughout Connecticut. Right. So you might be, even if you're there for a month or two months before you go back to your home site of your work, you might actually be in an area where you could bet you could access a service that was closer to your work site, you know, that month or that week, um, as well as know the services close to your house too. So in the beginning of the program, we focused a lot on sports and that athlete. But for those of us that 
are in the 55 and older communities. Mm-hmm. We really are those weekend warriors and we are those weekend athletes looking to stay active. So I'm sure that you see a lot of that. So what are some of the things you do with people that come in to see you about how we, how to get stronger, how to prevent injury and stay yep. active as we get older? Definitely, definitely. We, we all have that on our mind. And uh, a lot of people I see ask the same question. The key I, I find working with people is to help them identify an exercise activity that they enjoy. Mm-hmm. It has to be fun and enjoyable to, to do it, to sustain it. Um, very few people want to be in a treadmill <laughs> in some corner room. Um, some people are okay with that, but most people want something different. They, they might enjoy walking at a park or reservoir. They might join being a group class, a group power class, or a yoga class. Or some people might enjoy swimming, or they might enjoy biking. So identifying that activity that's fun, um, that there, it won't be hard to do if it's fun. So that's right. the number one thing. And then two is starting slow. Starting, don't feel like you have to, you know, run ten miles. Just focus on, you know, running a half mile at the first goal, and then slowly uh, advancing as you get stronger and stronger, more used to it. That's key. Um, Another thing would be to look for activities that use your body differently. So walking is easy. You can do it anywhere. Anyone can walk. You can also do some yoga. You could do some stretching. You could do some biking. You could do um, a, group, a group class, such as a Zumba class. Mm. But you, using your body in different ways, so you're not just running all the time. That will help prevent overuse injury. Like the kids, right? Yes, exactly. It's the same situation. And then also, you know, low-impact activities are healthy um, for our joints as our joints get more and more mileage on them. Um, and so low-impact activities, what are those? So that's swimming is like the most beneficial activity for any joint because you exercise all the muscles without loading the hips, the knees, the back, or any joint. So it can be traditional swimming if you know how to swim and like swimming, or you can do something called aqua jogging where you put on this floaty waist belt that you can get some, most pools have them, or some pools have them. Otherwise, you could purchase it online or at, a, at like a Dick's Sporting Goods or Sporting Goods store um, that, ha- that allows you to basically run in the water. It keeps you up, um, and so your your chest out of the water, but you can run down a lane in a swimming pool and get exercise without impacting your joints. How cool is that? Yeah, it's aqua jogging. I and think then, they used it, to do that at Gaylord. I remember seeing people doing uh, that in the pool to build up strength when my husband was there. I be, I'm sure they did. Yeah. It's just a healthy way to do that. And then aqua exercise classes are very common at YMCA's, mm. um, you know, gyms that have pools, and in any community that has pools. So pool, walking, biking also is a low-impact activity. So riding a bike leisurely or with purpose is helpful. Um, the elliptical machine, if you are traveling on the road in a hotel or in a gym, that's a nice medium, low to medium-impact activity. Um so looking at all those sorts of activities and choosing low-impact ones is the best way to kind of get into exercise and keep your joints from being inflamed and aggravated. Wow. You know, I think that we, I, I think that as we get older, we are so afraid to get hurt that right. sometimes we shy away from certain things. But, you know, it's so important. I mean, if you talk with your physician or talk with someone in sports medicine, they can help you individualize a plan to prevent an injury, right? Yes. Exactly. Yep. The key is figuring out what, you know, what, what is in each person's individual life, where can we sit some exercise and where can we get some stretching in, some strengthening in that will help them you know, avoid injury. Certainly along those lines, ergonomics or how you sit and how you stand 
um, affects um, your back, your hips, and such. And so trying to help people support their back at all times in their workspace or at home space um, and getting them, you know, changing position frequently so that their, their back doesn't get so aggravated during the day is crucial. So I work with a lot of people on both individualized plan for exercise but also on daily ergonomics in their lives. You know, we learned this in nursing school, and oh my gosh, we had this one teacher, I'll never forget her, she made us literally squat and lift, squat and lift, Mm -hmm. and it was how we picked up something on the floor, how we lifted so that we didn't bend, and she so wanted to protect our backs, and to this day, I hear her in my head. (laughs) <laughs> remembering what it was like. And we used to have yep. to lift patients from bed to chair or chair to bed and just making sure you had enough people based on the weight of the patient and using your legs and not and you're not lift, using your back to lift. Absolutely. It's, it's so crucial to bend the knees. I mean, there used to be all these like public services on TV, I think about it. Um, but yeah, bending your knees is crucial so that you're not bending your back and putting it in a position where you can have a disc injury of the back. Mm. So if you get, you know, you bend your knees in almost like a semi-squat position, you, you can pretty much lift most anything, I mean, within reason. Right. Um, but that's the way to do it, is always being aware, just like that teacher instilled, that nurse teacher instilled in you to always think about protecting your back. It's crucial. Oh my gosh. Another thing along the back that people do, they don't even notice is like, They'll have their computer screen off to the right, and if they have an L-shaped desk, they'll have it in the corner. Mm. And so they're continually twisting when they're looking at the computer screen in their right. workstation. And that just leads to so many issues with back and neck that if they have the screen right in front of you at eye level, absolutely crucial to prevent back and neck injuries, whether it be at home right. at a desk, you know, a computer at work as well. So Trinity, we have these learning um, these learning modules that we have to do. I think you have to do them too, Doc. If you didn't sure, do them, they're due me. June 30th. So. I know. Time is ticking. <laughs> so I did a few today because I had a few minutes. But there Good. was a whole thing on ergonomics. And, mm-hmm. you know, truly, as I read through there, I found myself fixing myself, how I'm sitting at my desk in that 90-degree position. And, you know, a lot of people are starting to use those standing desks. What do you right. think of those? I think those are amazing, amazingly helpful. Because they get you out of that, like, flexed, you know, letter J position. Right, <laughs> your knees right. And into a letter I position. And so that's just so good to move our joints so they're not always getting the same pressure. So I think they're wonderful because they allow you to change position. Um, in the same realm, you don't want someone standing all day, all the time. You want them right. to sit a little bit. But we'd rather have people standing and moving more than sitting. Right. Uh, so it is very helpful. And thankfully, most businesses have really supported the use of them um, and there are a lot more economical options than there were when they first came out. Well, I think what they're working on regionally, which I think is incredible, they're working with our PT and our OT departments regionally to work with everyone on ergonomics. They're putting in a whole program and I think that that's so helpful. We should make sure that they touch base with you so that you can get involved in that process. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's so important you know, for people to really know what they're doing on a day-to-day basis, whether it be in patient care or in an office, very much Mm -hmm. like in the general public. I mean, I think of all the people I see gardening now and their bad body mechanics, it's unbelievable. Right. And there are some, like, um, gardening chairs and stools that really do help people's ergonomics when they're in the garden. So you're not bending off to the side or bending over for so long. Oh my gosh, I bought one for my mother-in-law. I still don't think she took it out of the box. She's killing me. <laughs> She's 86. It's time for her to use it. 
Oh, I agree. Oh, my goodness. Totally. But changing hey. a habit at that age is hard. Oh, definitely. Definitely is hard. But maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you bring it out of the box and show her, she might say, hey, that looks interesting. Yeah, I'll try that out. Yeah, I, I did. And that didn't work. <laughs> I got to try it. But it's so true. You know, it's, it's, I know I find myself, you know, using the knee pad or, or making sure that I'm not bending at the waist and I get down on the ground and just sit there and pull out weeds. Right. Along the same lines, like with gardening and other activities, if you do them in small chunks of time, mm-hmm. like 15-minute blocks, and then take three or four-minute break and then come back, that will also help us avoid overusing right. our joints. So breaking kind of tasks into small blocks of time is really helpful as a preventative strategy. There's one piece we didn't touch on, Doc, that we have a few minutes, so I want to make sure to talk about yeah. it because we kind of hinted at it. But a lot of people say, oh, I have bursitis in my hip. Mm-hmm. I have bursitis. Right. First of all, what is it? Secondly, how do you know you have it? How is it diagnosed? Mm-hmm. And what do we do to help it? Um, very common condition, and where people feel it most is when you're sleeping on your side at night. Mm-hmm. You can't stay on that side because it hurts so much. So bursitis, or in this case, we'll talk about the, there's a lot of the bursa on the body, but we'll talk about the, the hip one called the greater trochanteric bursa, or like you know, the hip bursitis. What it is, it's a little fluid sac that has normal fluid in it that allows um, some of our tendons, our tendons to move in our body. As, they, as their tendon, which connects the muscle to a bone, moves, it needs a little lubrication underneath it so it's not, you know, creaking and cracking and having lots of pain. So we have bursa to basically pad that area so that tendons can move. And so on the side of our hip, we have a bursa there that often gets inflamed. Um, you'd know you'd have it if you, you know, if you touch the side of your hip, and you can do that as you're listening, um, there's a bone that kind of points out on the, on the on your side of your hip that you feel more than other parts of your upper thigh. That bone is the greater trochanteric bone, and, mm-hmm. and right above that is a bursa right next to it. If that is really painful when you touch it, you might have some bursitis. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it, if it's actually a little bit irritable, that's normal. But if it like makes you jump a little bit, then you probably have some bursitis. So what do you do about it? Ice is your friend. So if you ice <laughs> it down 15 minutes, three or four times a day in a especially before bedtime, that would decrease some of the inflammation there. If you're allowed to take anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen or naproxen, which is um, Advil or Aleve, you could try those for three or four days, um, you know, as, as directed on the package. Also, um, stretching um, of the, the, that side is, is, is helpful. So one thing you could do is if you cross your legs um, in front of you, one foot over the other, and then sort of tilt bend to your left side that helps stretch one side mm-hmm. you bend to the right side stretches the other uh, that's one way to kind of stretch that that area it's called the IT band area iliotibial band is the term um, but that's helpful and then wearing supportive footwear with good arch support is important for that area because if you if you have very flat footwear like flat flip flops you can have a lot of tension up in that part of the hip so it can trigger some of that inflammation but if you have nice supportive sneakers or shoes or sandals with arches, um, you won't have that issue. I am learning that I really don't care what the shoe looks like. If my feet feel good and my hips feel good and my back feel good at the end of the day, my right. my footwear looked beautiful to me. Perfect. I agree with you 100%. Oh, my goodness. It, it is rough that so much um, of the stylish footwear doesn't necessarily have a good arch, but thankfully, a lot of great Footwear is looking sportier and better yes. as, as we go because there's such demand for it from all of us. Definitely, we want supportive footwear. 
Uh, so it's good to see that there's a lot more options than there used to be. Oh, I, the flip-flops? Yeah. <laughs> they're, yep. they're only for the beach. Right. Only for the yeah. beach when I walk on the hot sand. That's it. Even then, they're, um, you can get sandals that have a decent arch in it. Um, it, it certainly foot, footwear, running stores, footwear stores um, will have you know, sandals for the beach. They even have a decent arch in them nowadays. It's so important. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. so important. Well, we are towards the end, Doc. So I want to make sure everybody knows that this is Dr. Jeffrey Brown, who is the director of primary care sports medicine and the Connecticut Sports Medicine Institute. You can find him on St. Francis's website, St. Francis, um, stfrancischare.org and if you click on find a physician and put in Dr. Brown his picture will come up with all of his information he's in Hartford and in Bloomfield on Cottage Grove Road and your phone is 860-714-7588 I got that yep perfect good and um, you can find out more about him and a lot of what you do any parting words Doc? oh just uh, find, find an exercise that you enjoy and the goal is to do it four or five times per week to keep active. And the more you stay active, the more you'll be able to do. Awesome. So keep on pushing forward, everybody. Awesome. Thank you, Doc. Thank you for joining us tonight. All right. Thanks, Robin. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. That, again, was Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Brown, um, primary care and sports medicine, which I think is a really interesting topic. Um, We are staying with our orthopedic type of topic for the month. I will be on, believe it or not, again next Wednesday because we changed our show from last week because we had the Sparkle event in Hartford. I will be on again next Wednesday, hopefully with a voice. Hopefully I have a normal voice by then. And we will be joined by an orthopedic specialist right here on our Greater Waterbury Market. So hopefully you can join us. So this is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital providing exceptional care every patient every day. Have a great weekend.